I love it. I drive by the Salesforce Tower or the Transbay Terminal or um, you na name another major project in America, JFK, LaGuardia Airport. You drive by, you say, I did that. I was, I was in there in a hard hat several times when they were, you know, pouring the concrete floors. And that, that pride of ownership is something you don't get in a lot of other industries that is that you get in spades working in construction, even if you're on the software side of things. This is Undiluted, the show about the amazing founders and companies who have used government R&D grants, contracts, and sales to build their products, grow their companies, and keep their equity. We're Katie Person and Gene Kesselman from MIT, and Jeff Orison from FedScout. And on today's show, how a Navy nuclear engineer's frustration with mega infrastructure projects led to a whole new way to manage commercial and DOD construction. We were both working in it. He was on a major infrastructure project and I was trying to develop a major infrastructure project. His project was like three X times as big as my billion dollar project. So both large scale type things. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, hey, I'm, what's the schedule and cost of this asset that actually doesn't have a comparable in the world right now. And a lot of that comes from labor unit rates and material costs, projecting all this other things. And he's on a project and said, we kind of missed the mark here with one of the top EPC companies in the world. So I'm not sure how to do it, right? And I think a lot of people are making a guess at it, an educated guess, but a guess because the data just isn't clean. And a lot of these times you're just tweaking up and down to get to a number. And that's where, again, why can it be that I'm gonna propose to spend $3 billion on this project and it actually comes in at $4 billion? How does that happen in a world, right? And I think as we kept talking about this over the subsequent weeks and months, I think it was, it was us talking about it for six months before we even really considered potentially turning into a business. And it was the idea that the information on project execution, which ultimately drives costs, is highly unstructured, low quality, right? And at the end of the day, what happened that drive costs is somebody filling out a piece of paper, somebody handed to somebody else, several different people typing dis different information into Excel spreadsheets, then into different systems. And by the time it comes back together, also on an Excel spreadsheet, it's weeks and months late. And so you don't have any ability to be agile. You don't have any ability to think that you're actually looking at accurate information. And the data is driving, is usually confirming a gut instinct, but hopefully at best it is informing a guess. And we just, that can't be the case. And that's what we've set out to build at Rombix is, is, take some of that guesswork out of it. And at the end of the day, you power more efficient field workflows that structure data as soon as it happens. So I can analyze it as soon as it happens and I can make decisions in real time to keep things on track. The need you're describing completely makes sense to me. So what did Rumbix 1.0 look like? There's a big difference between a good idea and between that and a good product and between that and a good business. And we tried to execute hard on a really good idea that was going to be a difficult product to build and even more difficult business to scale. <laughs> but we spent at least nine months on it. And it was essentially, if our goal was accurate, real-time measurement of what's going on in the field as a first step, when it's a spectrum from highly inaccurate and latent 
which is today's day, to fully automated. On the other end, we tried to get all the way to fully automated, and we, and we basically put uh, wearable sensors, essentially a smartwatch, on construction workers' wrists. And we have a patent for mapping general biomotion to specific construction activities, and the idea that we could say with some degree of certainty that worker X is an iron worker and was tying rebar for four out of the eight hours of the day. And they were doing these other activities for two of the hours a day, and, and they were not actively engaged for another two hours a day because they were waiting on something. And so we were trying to drive that level of insight. And so great idea. We actually did a bit of this and proved out that there was, you could do it, but it was just intense, right? I think even today, which is funny to think, but even today, most active large-scale construction projects are not Wi-Fi denied, but not great Wi-Fi environments. So you can imagine eight years ago, trying to maintain connectivity and all these other things and the accuracy of your Apple Watch, your Fitbit is still not where it needs to be to do what we were trying to do. All these things that you started to realize over time, but it was valuable in that we learned a lot. I think the DNA of what we learned in the field, I think the one of the big challenges Early on was, hey, we're in California, we're trying to do these projects in highly unionized environments, and we're saying, hey, let's put a tracker on you. Didn't At first blush, that doesn't go over too well with anybody, but we learned some things early on in engaging the unions from day one and saying, we want to do this. We're not trying to get folks fired. We're trying to understand efficiency and actually deliver more productive days, which is exactly what these men and women in the field want. The very first time that we pitched the idea of Rumbix to a bunch of construction workers in the early days with the wearables and showing up to a job site in the South Bay, San Francisco, with the union representatives present. And I remember the job site supervisor introduced us. And I'm I'm not even exaggerating. Hey, here's two Stanford guys who want to track you all day with these wearables. So like, talk to them. And I mean, we step in the middle of this group at 5.30 a.m. and people... The, the look on their faces made it clear they wanted to take a tire iron to our face. But we worked through it and we said, we're building a business on this. Like, you got to trust us and here's why. And we understand that you are motivated by, you know, having really good days at work, driving production, you know, in this case, like laying a lot of linear feet of pipe and all these other things. And so we had to build that trust over time. But that was a, that was a harrowing uh, introduction I have to believe your military experience really helped out here. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think there's a lot of translation, honestly, to our business. I worked with some super talented enlisted personnel on a nuclear submarine, and you realize a lot of things are important. And I think we took that to the construction industry, realizing that there's high capability, high drive, high intelligence, but it's also, it's a community that, that, generally folks underestimate. And so I think that translation from a military experience to the construction industry has allowed us to build a really compelling product uh, where we might not have otherwise. So how did you get from there to where you are today? We learned a lot about the value of data that we could deliver, but then made the smart decision after some of those time and, and raised a little money to really get into more software driven and can we get from that highly inefficient highly manual process to something much more efficient and much more structured and maybe we don't get to full automation but we get 80 90 percent of the way there and i think that's what we have with rumbix now is essentially 
make it easier than paper, easier than existing process to do your administration so that you have more time to drive production. And on top of that, the data is better. And so you're able to do real-time analysis on it. How we do that is a really compelling mobile application that feeds a web application. Mobile is mainly for data collection. Web is for data quality administration and analysis. And then we pipe that information that's already structured into other systems like ERP, accounting, payroll, things along those lines. And so the way I think of it is like raw data comes in and it's already analyzed. And then we power getting that raw data into that final state that is normally when somebody types it into a, an Oracle type system. We just digitize that whole chain and allow you to analyze it along the way. And so I think that's a bit of the elevator pitch. Functionally, what it is at the very bottom, there are construction workers and field technicians that are doing everything on paper right now. Roughly weekly is when it's getting handed in and it's getting in the way of actually doing work and you're running paper around all this other stuff. And so this mobile app replaces those. We actually do a lot of data sharing things so that it literally takes you much less time, like 50% less time and sometimes even order of magnitudes more efficient by using our mobile application. So we deliver value at the lowest end of like more time on task, less administrative work while the quality of it's better. Then at that middle administration layer, you're generally on the other side of it, running down paper, collecting stacks of paper, getting it into an Excel spreadsheet to get a view of what's going on. And so we clean that up as well. And so not only is your administration going faster, and when you think about the business value that comes with that is, is the ability to actually understand unit rates and performance at a really granular level because the data is collected at that level versus sort of this aggregated mushy level that it is now. And so you can actually understand how I do a certain type of work on hospital projects across America or how my hospital division does this thing or my data center division. And so there's a lot more access to information by everybody. You've talked a lot about the people impact of Rumbix, but can you give a, an example of what that looks like? I'm stoked to actually get to go Friday this week. I'm driving up to Sacramento. There's a big public project for a bunch of public workers for running the state of California and actually another Hensel Phelps job. So we're handing out our Foreman of the Future Award and really highlighting boots on the ground folks. I think that's one thing I will criticize the construction industry about it is not really good at celebrating wins. It's, oh, you did a great job on the next one. And so we created this Foreman of the Future Award to really highlight those folks who are leading the way in the field, not just with technology, but with process, with care for people and things along those lines. So I get to head up there. I think I think the governor of California might show up to it, which is cool, but we've done them before. And um, Ronnie Lott is one of our investors. And I always say showing up to a job site with Ronnie Lott in San Francisco is sort of like showing up to high school with Justin Bieber. You're pretty popular, but we've given away Super Bowl tickets and things like that. And it's really exciting to see these construction workers who work their asses off really get recognized sometimes for the first time in their career. And most of them, the wives show up and there's a, a bit of tears and stuff because people are congratulating them. And it's really rewarding to be able to provide that experience for folks and be be a catalyst for that in the industry. Now, frequently behind the the exciting people and technology story of building a business, there's maybe a, a little bit less glamorous side, which is how everything got financed. So how were you paying for all of this development? 
from the investor side, when we started the business in 2014, really, the idea of investing in verticals and a messy vertical like construction was not in vogue at all. It is more now, and you'll hear that in the talk track. But it was tough because we had we'd open up pitch decks and talk about the construction industry as a $10, $12 trillion global industry. And venture capitalists were just like, what? It's that big? We're like, yeah, it's the second largest industry in the world. And they're thinking about all these other industries that are multi-billion dollar industries as being huge. And so there was just not an appreciation for the size of it. And then most investors, the closest they could come to appreciating what we're trying to do was hearkening back to their own experiences, trying to do like a home remodel and manage a contractor. And, And so then we had to do this other step of like, yeah, this isn't that. This is actually a different type of more complex construction. But that was the the big epiphany was realizing, hey, this this complication, this lack of good data and ability to understand it doesn't just apply at the billion dollar mega project level. It goes all the way down really to all construction. Did you find raising stressful or natural? Having never really fundraised for a business and talking to venture capitalists, it was tough. And the adage of knocking on a lot of doors is exactly correct. You got to do it. And I think the the biggest learning that support and excitement came out of the least likely places. I would research investors. I said, oh, perfect fit. Look at their portfolio. Look at what they're talking about. And then nothing. And then somebody that was like, they're never going to be interested in what we're doing. We're suddenly super interested. So talking to all those people, but I think it was interesting as well, um, getting better at fundraising by doing it, right? And so I think a lot of folks get discouraged early on because you hear no's and you hear people questioning your ideas. And and the realization is that like everybody's got an opinion, um, but just because somebody's holding the checkbook doesn't make them smarter, especially about this business that you poured your heart into. So I think some things early on, we're getting more confident in the vision we were building. I'm trying to build a software business. I've still never written a line of code, nor has my co-founder, right? And I remember being in uh, fundraising pitches and, and say, well, you're not technical co-founders. So how are you going to get through that? And and early on, I'd be like, oh, well, we'll you know, eh, eh, we'll figure it out. Eh. And then we get, we just over time got more confidence. And, and I still remember one of the funner things was just like, you know, he's a civil engineer, a professional civil engineer. I'm a nuclear engineer. So we can build a nuclear power plant for you. But I think what you're saying is we don't code (laughs) and and have an investor be like, oh yeah, that's what I meant. And and it was like, we're going to find people to do that. We both know how to drive a Excel financial model, but you're probably not going to want us to do that for a long time either. Right. And so the, the real power of building a business is finding really competent people to build it with you. Uh, And so you don't have to have all the skills up front. Given your background, was the federal market on your roadmap from day one? Coming from a military background, knowing enough about it, actually, you look at the government pretty cautiously. I think there's, it's just tough to get caught up in the size of the government and they pay big dollars for stuff that works. And so all of a sudden you're like, oh, if I just got the one thing there, I got a business. But it I think that's one way to look at it and maybe those that works out. But I think the other way to look at it is it's a huge complex customer, right? And complex customers can 
own your business. They can de facto own your business because they own your roadmap and your resources trying to make them happy. And so if, if a government entity is the only person you ever want to sell to, it's a more viable path to just go after that. But that was never the plan with our business. And so when I look at mine, it was like, I'm, I'm going to go there. I'm not going to R&D with the government as much as I am going to prove out a commercial product. And I'm going to be successful commercially with or without state or federal dollars. But I know that this is applicable in those markets. And so when is the right time to engage it? When is the product mature enough um, to go there? When are we as a business mature enough to be able to go after that sort of business? And it's just interesting. I think from a contracting perspective, we were mature enough to go into it eyes wide open and limit limit our risk on the contract and things along those lines that I just, I wouldn't have wanted to do early on. And so I just look at it as a big opportunity, but still with big risk, right? So how did you do when the time was right to look at federal? It's a little bit like Jurassic Park T-Rex testing the fence. There's like different times that I, I had a conversation here or there and it just didn't feel like the move. And then it was like, you know, candidly, we have a bunch of commercial customers that do work for the government. And so I'm like, clearly it fits in here now. And then, and so now I knew the product's ready. Do I think we're ready to take on a large client like that? And I just assessed it to be a yes. And everything you do in a new business that is new is going to have some risk on it. But the reward justified the risk, the potential reward justified taking the risk. But I'm still pretty much the only person in my business that's done any work on the government as a project. I have some project managers and folks supporting it from a field trial, but like there hasn't been a big organizational push behind it because in my mind as a business owner, I want to continue to be great on the commercial market that is more repeatable where we built great success. And basically that's my role as a founder. I'm going to test this new market in a big way. And so I've done it essentially alone. And then now we're on the cusp of expansion to where now I look at folding it into our more core business offering to do more of this type of work after I've proven it, right? And so in many ways, you you take a step back to starting a business. This is, in some ways, it's like starting a new business line. And so you have sort of an MVP and you try to get some early funding and wins and then you build from there versus being ready with everything out the gates. But I had a core, very capable, very secure software product that I felt confident could be adapted to a defense environment, and that's proven to be the case so far. SBIR and other DoD innovation programs have become popular among startups. Is that the on-ramp you took? For sure. The way I think about it is these innovation dollars is they're willing to pay me a little bit of money for me to get inside and prove that there's value. And so it's a, you know, from a dollar's perspective, it's a lower commitment on their side but they have more comfort buying a solution on the back end of it. And from my side, I don't have to come with the full certification and pre-integrated with their existing systems and all this other stuff that you would expect. I got to come with a product, but I get some dollars to be able to figure out how to navigate that. So it seems to align interests in a good way. And so it allows you to take that first step. Historically, VCs have been skeptical of the government. How have your investors reacted to your federal exploration? I I think that's a valid concern. You can't, it's not something that I would want 
or if I was an investor, would want my business hanging their hat on it. This is going to fully fundamentally change our business and put us on a new trajectory. I wouldn't want to make that bet because it's not a great bet to make candidly. I think presenting it as a potential new market for an existing product we have of which we get paid to verify that it's a valid market. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Can you not be distract, distracted in your core business? Then okay. But I think when it's presented as this panacea or this core thing, it's again, it's maybe they'll be your only customer ever, but it won't be it won't be that sort of big scalable business that's more broadly applicable. And I think that's the big pushback from investors can be, like I said, like cash is not the same as recurring revenue. And so in many ways for my business, if I, the cash is coming in the bank and we can use it to invest, but if I don't turn this initial contract into a larger follow-on contract, it's actually a detriment to my business because it looks like growth, if you count it as growth and then it goes away, it's gone. And so got to be super careful because I don't want to commit to that until we're ready. And we were a good halfway through our innovation um, work before I said, hey, this it's clear that stakeholders on the other side are seeing the value and that we can deliver on this. So let's start pushing more for this as part of the business. But it wasn't out the gates. A common criticism of the government is that there's a big gap between the side of the house that funds new technology and the side of the house that purchases technology. What's your experience been? And have you been able to connect with customers? I was even a bit under the assumption that there would be more doors open. And at the end of the day, like a big chunk of the defense complex doesn't even know these innovation dollars exist or what they're for. And on top of it, the intros aren't that strong. Uh, and so you like, you have to hustle just as much. I've got, I'm in one hand, like waving around this contract, like I've got a contract with the government and like most people don't care. And so then I had to do just as much work hustling within the government as I do hustling in the construction industry to find the right person and the right contact who had the problem attached to the strategic issue and all those other things. Um, and so some of that stuff you learn networking is, is equally as important, right? You know, from my standpoint, I think that we're having really good success with Naval Facilities Command, NAVFAC, but I'd really like to expand what we're doing within NAVFAC, within the Army Corps and AFCAC and some of these other services, because they it's all the same organization doing roughly the same work with different but very similar backend software, and we solve the problem for all of them. So I'd like to do um, more within the government for sure. Well, congrats on that traction. I mean, that is no small thing. So what does the future look like for you? It's... A lot of what we're doing today at, at a larger scale. I think from a product mix, we keep trying to go more broadly to capture all field level data. And so we have we have a really good handle on the most quantitative workflows when it comes to these things, which is task, time on task, delivery against task in the form of production, any sort of change work, stuff that that really affects budgets and schedules. But there's such rich richness of data around that when you think about safety and compliance and all these other things that that actually do have big effects on production and productivity. 
if you could get them in a more structured way. So I think from a product perspective, doubling down on the quantitative stuff we do really well, but broadening our product set to get all this data structured, archivable, searchable, all these other things that we do. And then from a customer standpoint, it's just, you know, we have some of the largest general contractors and specialty subcontractors in the nation, working with WMATA, BART, other large transit authorities, Department of Defense is getting on there. So how do we, you know, we're really good at this high level and we are good, uh, really strong in the middle level too. But I think growing out that, because I, I do think the sophistication that we bring to the big companies they're ready for and the sort of mid-market companies aren't necessarily ready for the sophistication or don't say they want it, but aren't ready for it. And so I think, how do we make ourselves more accessible to somebody who wants to take that leap, but doesn't know how to yet? And so that's something we got to work on. Congrats on everything you've achieved. It is no small thing. I appreciate it, man. It's, it takes that energy uh, to get through some of the stuff because it's constant. You know, when you're building a business, you can convince yourself that over this next hump or when I cross this next milestone, it'll get easier. And the only thing that's true is the stuff you've already figured out does get easier. And then there's new stuff that's harder. You got to figure out. I have some friends who always joke, and it's actually a very true adage that I came up with a bit, but it's the reason it's so hard is because what's hard, everybody told you it's going to be hard. You've convinced yourself it's hard, but there's that little voice in the very back of your head that's like, maybe it'll be a little bit easy. And it just isn't. And it just isn't. And so the more you can appreciate that it's going to be a slog, but also be excited to learn new things and overcome new challenges. That's how you get through it because it's worth every ounce of energy for sure. That was Drew DeWall from Rumbix. And we know that the federal market is complicated, so visit Undiluted on FedScout.com to hear more founder stories and get guides, checklists, and Q&A to help you explore your options. We release new episodes each week, so please like, follow, and subscribe to make sure you get alerted when new episodes come out. And thank you for listening.